Since our last episode, a lot has happened. After the longest night of Peter's life, he wept bitterly for a long time. Meanwhile, Jesus was brought from the house of Caiaphas to Pontius Pilate. Then he was severely beaten and eventually killed. And Peter was nowhere to be found. It was too much for him. He couldn't take it. But he did hear about it. Several times, actually. Everyone seemed to be determined to remind him, and each time the knot in his chest tightened a little more. But a few days later, something strange happened. Reports started coming in that Jesus was back. They began with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The day after the Sabbath, Mary and Mary claimed the tomb was empty. The disciples didn't believe them, but Peter later went and saw it for himself. Perplexed, but knowing there are so many possible explanations, he refused to let himself get too excited. Stories like this continued for the next seven days, but Peter, very uncharacteristically, took a back seat to it all. He's never been one to sit anything out, especially with matters regarding the rabbi, but the events of that night did something to him. The fire in his eyes is gone. He's not himself. Emotionally drained, spiritually apathetic, physically restless, he's stuck, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. Welcome to the seventh and final episode of this season, The Table Again. They had all decided to make the journey back to Galilee because Rabbi has told them he was going before them there. It was one of the last things he said to them before the horrible end. The two-day trek has comforted Peter. Galilee is home, the familiar sights of his people. Peter walked most of the way alone. The others wanted to talk about what happened. Peter could think of nothing he wants less. Peter is clearly not himself. He cannot settle on one emotion. In one moment he is angry, the next ashamed. The confusion of the trial and torture haunts his mind. He cannot reconcile the man he followed with the broken body that they buried. Thomas approaches with sympathetic eyes, but Peter looks him off. He just simply wants to be alone. The evening air carries an undercurrent of warmth, but the wind chills Peter. The others looked earnestly at Peter. They have followed the last orders of Jesus. Now they look to Peter for direction. They are lost, Peter thinks, but I don't know any better than they what the next move is. I am lost too. I followed that man to the end, and what did it get me? I threw everything away at the first sign of danger. What can I do now? I can't leave these men. Peter, the rock. One more broken promise of mine, an altar to failure and shame. I can't sit here anymore. John looks at Peter. He notices something in Peter that has been absent since Peter took off to follow Jesus the night he was taken. A spring bolstering each step he takes, a discordant note of excitement. Peter finds himself acting for the first time in a while. I'm going fishing. With that, Peter leaves. The others look around. John and his brother shrug and follow him. Three others, including Thomas, gather some supplies and head out the door. They catch up with Peter where his family keeps their boat. The six of them hoist the boat on their shoulders and make the short walk to the water. Peter smiles. No one can blame Peter here. This is completely understandable. Humans love routine. 
especially when everything is up in the air. When times get tough, we stay busy. We go back to what we know. For Peter, that means it's time to fish. Peter and Thomas fling the net over the side of the boat. The brothers were pulling up a net on the other side. Nathaniel and the others were cleaning and sorting the paltry sum they'd managed to scrape out of the net. Despite this, after it all, Peter is glad to be back on the sea. But he doesn't miss this part, the repeated failure of fishing. As if he needs more failure. He and Thomas haul up the net. Peter has almost forgotten how the water drags the net against your pull, and momentarily, a flash of triumph crosses his face. But as the net rises, empty once again, Peter curses softly into the night. The deep blue that signals dawn slowly brightens into the softness of early morning. It signals the end of their fruitless night. Peter drops to the floor of the boat. One more defeat. He sighs deeply. He may not have been the best follower. He may not be the best leader. He may not become the rock of Rabbi's church. But he was a good fisherman. He can't remember the last time he came up nets empty. Peter yawns as he turns to shore. A man stands at the water's edge. Peter narrows his eyes. Must be a thief, Peter chuckles. Won't he be disappointed in me? Join the long line, my friend. The others now see the man. He has been standing there too long. Peter is surprised to find himself looking forward to a scuffle. I could use a good fight. It might knock me back to myself. Children, have you caught anything? Peter and his friends wince. Fishermen usually hate that question, especially when the answer is no. Peter refuses to answer. No, is John's terse answer. No one else says anything. They anticipate a laughing, cutting comment. None comes. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat. You will find some. Who does this man think we are? Some amateurs on the sea for pleasure? John whispers to Peter. Peter just shrugs. What do we have to lose? Fish? He nods at Thomas and Nathaniel. They lower the net. Suddenly the net jumps. Peter's hands flash over to it. He peers over into the dark sea, his trained eyes detecting movement. A lot of movement. He nods John over. John has just noticed it too. John begins to bring the net up, but he can't. He looks with wild excitement at Peter. Peter looks puzzled. Is it stuck? No. Peter's eyes widen. He and the others rush to the net and pull. It still won't budge. Peter can see the fish thrashing in the net just below the boat. They float a mere stone's throw from shore. They'll have to drag it in. Peter cannot contain himself. He lets out a shout and clasps John's shoulders with both hands. He remembers the thrill of the catch. He thanks God for the stroke of blessing and luck. He thinks of his family. Now they can enjoy the fruits of labor. Peter hasn't noticed that John isn't sharing in his excitement. Or rather, John seems excited for an entirely different reason. He stares at the man on the beach. They're close enough that John can see him clearly. It is the Lord. Peter follows John's pointed finger. It all falls into place. Of course, Peter thinks, he is back. Suddenly, the last few days melt away. The tension that caged Peter's heart snaps, his soul strains against his body, and Peter, himself once again, acts before he thinks. 
Peter feels the cold water before he's conscious of his decision to jump. He breaks the surface, coming up to the shout of his friends. Peter, we were barely hanging on as it was. We can't hold it without you. But Peter ignores them. He feels a childish glee as he flexes his muscles in the water, abandoning his body to the memory of his youth swimming in this very sea. He even kicks back harder than he needs, splashing water on John. He laughs without restraint. He knows the distance is longer than he has swum in a long time. He doesn't care. He feels light. He could swim forever. He thinks only of one thing. He longs to be with his rabbi. We've seen this pattern over and over again this season. Jesus always has his arms wide open to the lost. Peter's been seeing it for three years, hearing parables about it, eating meals with tax collectors and sinners, making room for everyone at the table. But sometimes the gap between our head and our heart is a difficult one to cross. Sometimes we understand truth at an intellectual level, We study it, read books about it, listen to podcasts, talk to friends, we get it. But just because you understand something in your head does not necessarily mean it has sunk into your heart and become a part of who you are. I live in this tension all the time. Transformation just takes time. But when it happens, when a truth sinks in and transforms you in your innermost being, it is a fantastic moment. Because when you understand a truth intellectually, you can apply it to others. But when you get it, I mean really get it, you can begin to believe it about yourself. This is that moment for Peter. Or maybe more accurately, this is the culmination of a three-year transformation for Peter. Jumping into the water, he understands the most beautiful truth in this world, that no one is too far gone that you may have wandered off the path, but there is always an invitation to return. No shame, no condemnation, no I told you so's. Simply a, we've been waiting for you. We're so glad you're back. There is a place for you at the table. Peter feels each grain under his hands. He rises to his feet. He shakes himself dry like the dogs that roam the beach hoping for a handout. He steps towards Rabbi, but his legs tremble from the effort of the swim. Peter is unsure what to expect, or what will be expected of him. Rabbi has moved down the shore just a few paces. Peter smells the fire before he sees it, the savory smell of freshly caught fish, skewered on a stick, roasting over a driftwood fire. Peter crosses to it. He can finally feel the warmth of flame, something he has not allowed himself to do since that night in the courtyard. It was too painful, but now? Everything has changed. Peter hears the scrape of the boat in the shallows. Warm and only partly dry, he reluctantly returns back to help his friends. He pulls two handfuls of fish out of the net and carries them back over to Rabbi. Jesus skewers them and places them over the fire. Peter, come, sit, eat. Rabbi gestures to a spot next to him. He's smiling wider than Peter remembers ever seeing. Peter is stunned. He has rehearsed this moment daily since that night they locked eyes. But now, words fail him. Rabbi still smiles at Peter, his eyes radiant with forgiveness and love. Peter laughs, to himself at first. Then, softly, soon, Peter laughs louder and louder, tears streaming down his cheek. 
he's not sure if he's crying from the laughter or from the sadness. The absurdity is too much. The generosity and grace. Rabbi joins with his own laughter. The moment tells Peter that his words would be pointless. Instead, he sits to the right of the rabbi, who hands him a fish and some bread. Jesus has just defeated death, ushering in the new exodus where God's children have access out of slavery and into freedom. That's a really big deal. If you're Jesus, you must be feeling pretty good about life right now. And what do you do? You take a nice stroll along the beach and then cook breakfast for your buddies. That's our God. So simple, so free, and yet infinitely complex, saturated in love and community and food. There is something about the table that draws people in. The same way it was keeping Peter from running away when times got tough, the pull is now so strong that Peter can't even stand to stay in the boat. He jumps straight into the water. John and James are probably thinking, we'll be there in two minutes, just chill. But Peter doesn't care. He has to get back to the table. The gravitational pull is too strong. What is it? It's generosity. It's love. It's acceptance. It's forgiveness. It's an invitation. In other words, Jesus goes to the cross, rises from the dead, defeating death once and for all to invite his friends and the entire world back to the table. This is the gospel. There's a seat for you, and Peter desperately needs to hear it. The bread, the body broken for us all, the fire, the place Peter denied Jesus, the table, the reminder that there is a place for him and always will be. So they go to the table. They sit, just like they always have, a new table in a new place under much different circumstances, but the same crew doing what they do best sharing a meal, laughing, telling stories, being together. The sun's rays bounce off the moving water, glimmering and beautiful. As it reaches its zenith, Peter can feel the warmth of the sun in his bones. He forgot this part of the night at sea too, the cold penetrating every ounce of your body. Peter is on his fifth fish. He can't remember such a simple meal tasting so good, or any meal really. The conversation around Peter moves in the familiar pattern with all the seriousness and frivolity of men who have spent almost too much time together. It is like nothing had ever happened, but it had. Jesus had asked Peter to feed his sheep three times. The number is not lost on Peter. We are back to follow me, Peter thinks. It is the same invitation that started it all. As the conversation and the day roll on, Peter becomes acutely aware that this, all of this, the joy, the heartache, the pain, the love, all of this is only the beginning. More, much more is to come. But Peter pushes all that to one side for the moment. Right now, he thinks only of this moment, a simple meal with his teacher and friend. The table is the most important place and always will be.
C.S. Lewis once famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's how I feel about the table. And I don't just mean the table like the object that you share a meal at. See, I don't think Jesus made such a big deal about the table simply to encourage us to eat meals together. That's a huge part of it. He absolutely wants us to do that, but that's just a part of it. The table is not just the object. There wasn't even a physical table in that last scene. It's also the subject. In other words, it's not just a thing to rally around. It's also the lens through which we can choose to view life. Or to keep with Lewis's analogy, the table can be the light that allows us to see everything else. We can decide to participate in this way of living, to make room for everyone, treating them as eternal souls, being patient with them, listening to them, asking the right questions, hearing their stories, giving them the benefit of the doubt, and maybe as we start to practice this, we'll realize that there is no one we can't learn to love once we hear their story. See, what the table represents is an invitation to live beyond yourself to take yourself out of the center of the universe and focus your efforts on love and forgiveness and on serving others and speaking life into the world because the table is an invitation to realize all the pressure is off you, which means you can stop acting and start being because you aren't defined by your past mistakes or failures. And you're free to celebrate your story, the one God is redeeming a little more every day as your struggles become your story and your pain becomes your platform. But hey, don't take my word for it. Peter walks into the house, pausing at the threshold. He's never seen it so crowded before. Then again, he's never delivered the message of Jesus to thousands of people before either. And he did that just yesterday. Peter's life is now a series of firsts. He moves from place to place in wonder. He still hasn't the slightest idea how he pulls it off each time. The response yesterday was extraordinary. People clearly felt the story of his rabbi deeply. Their souls moved and shook at the sound of his name. And so this morning the house is full with more people than they know what to do with or how to feed. People from the far reaches of Israel, Rome, Asia, and beyond, hungry for the words and life of Jesus. They long to be part of the story. Peter notices a change in the other disciples as well. They have a confidence in him looking to him for what comes next. He steps into the room and it falls silent. Everyone there, the newcomers, the disciples, even John, stare back at him. They are waiting for instructions. For a brief moment, the old insecurity and anxiety return. But Peter looks past everyone and sees a table. Smiling, he strides over to it. The meal stretches out before him. The table is set. He grabs a loaf of bread and breaks it. The movement begins. Thanks for listening to this season of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com and follow us on Twitter at SIS Project. We'll see you soon for season two.